Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, J. Gregory Akin, author of Blue-Blooded Cavalrymen. Gregory Akin, author and editor of Blue-Blooded Cavalrymen, Captain William Brooke Rawl in the Army of the Potomac. How did this gentleman come to your attention? Uh, many years ago, while I was still a student at a, at a college here in Philadelphia, I, uh, I learned of the existence of uh, what was then called the Civil War Library and Museum in Philadelphia. So it, it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it was on 1805 Pine Street. Um, I, I actually saw a reference to it in, uh, there's a, a, a sort of a prolific union author, if you will, or, or a Civil War historian named Bruce Catton. And I saw a reference to the War Library and Museum of Philadelphia on a picture credit in one of his books. So um, I had become very interested in uh, the study of the war during, during college. And uh, I decided one day to go to the Civil War Library and Museum. And uh, I found it on, uh, where it existed then on 1805 Pine Street. Um, became a volunteer there. And eventually ended up on the Board of Directors, which they, they kind of um, stylistically referred to as the Board of Governors, where I served for 12 years. So the Brooke Rawl letters, actually, along with a couple of other collections that I published in the past, were part of the holdings of the Civil War Library and Museum. You said it was there? What happened to it? It... it um, it, it suffered from kind of poor financing and poor management, if you will. So there, when I first became involved with it, the museum was working uh, off an endowment that was established in the 1920s and really hadn't enriched itself in that time. So it was dependent on the kindness of donors, the kindness of strangers, people paying admission fees coming, walking in off the street. So to make a very long story short, uh, and it has a nice ending, the three-dimensional artifacts from the Civil War Library and Museum, the swords, the uniforms, many things like that, are now at Gettysburg National Military Park, um, which is a great home for them, and they do a wonderful job uh, preserving them. Uh, many of the paper documents, including the Brooke Rawl letters and a number of other um, collections and, and historical records of former members of the museum are now housed um, at the Abraham Lincoln Foundation of the Union League of Philadelphia. Um, and I would add, just if I just just sort of a shameless plug, um, the book, uh, my proceeds from the book are going to benefit the nonprofit Abraham Lincoln Foundation of the Union League. So, um, yeah, I just it seemed right. You know, they, they, they own they own the book. They, I'm sorry, they own the letters. It just seemed a uh, uh, the right thing to do. So I, I didn't want to profit off 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 of their their collections. So my my proceeds are being donated to them. So when did you decide that William Brooke Rawl was worth a book? Um, basically when I read his letters, which was, which was many years ago. So I, I became exposed to the letters quite some time ago, probably. You, why did you start reading the letters in the first place? Well, I, at the museum. So I became very familiar with the archival holdings of the museum. And this, this, was, this was a grouping of letters that was there. So uh, just curiosity is... Very much. Yeah, I want to very read much. this. Yeah, I want to read this. So there were, you know, probably 15 or 20 different fairly complete letter collections in, in the holdings of the museum, of which that comprised one of them. And it was actually clear when I began to read them, he, he valued them very highly. He had them bound into a, a leather-bound volume. Um, nicely, his, um, he had some diaries. There were original diaries at one point in time, and the story is explained in the book. To make a long story short, they were in private hands and have since disappeared. No one has seen his diaries um, since the, probably the late 1980s, early 1990s. 
Uh, Brookroll had some foresight, though, in that in about the 1880s, he had a, a typescript copy of his diaries made up, and that was also bound into a leather volume. So it really was kind of a nice, complete you know, recounting of his war experiences from the middle of 1863 when he got out of the University of Pennsylvania uh, all the way through, uh, through the end of the war. Actually, he served uh, after Appomattox through, uh, through August 1865. So I had a nice collection of letters and, and the diaries. Um, you know, we'll talk more about how he became a fairly prolific historian of the Battle of Gettysburg and the cavalry fighting there. Uh, but it just seemed, uh, it seemed very appropriate. Part of it, you know, you, you can come across letter collections that aren't very well written, and I've seen many, many of those, whether they're in, 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 in other archival collections or colleges and universities and things like that. It was clear that these were, um, these were the work of a very educated man, and he was very, very well written and, and well spoken. So that, 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 that appealed to me greatly as well. What kind of shape are the letters in? The, the paper? The, the paper the is in fantastic shape. So, so there, there, there was next to no acidity in paper at that time. So, you know, if, if these letters had been written anywhere from the 1890s to the 1930s or 40s, there could be some loss and some brittleness. And the, the only um, place I encountered some difficulty was there, there was some yellowing in some of the pages and some of the, uh, out of necessity, he wrote in pencil sometimes. So some of those were a little bit hard to decipher, but honestly, in a, in a run of 150 letters, if there were five or six words that I couldn't make out, it was a lot. What was the mail service like then? I mean, he was at the front in the Civil War and he was able to drop a letter in the mail and. It's, a, it's, it's, it, it's actually an excellent question. Um, it was surprisingly efficient, especially, um, pardon the um, especially when you get into the Virginia campaigns of 1864 and 65. So, so Grant crossed the, Grant and Meade crossed the rapid end with the Army of the Potomac in early May, and there there were really six weeks of probably the most brutal fighting that the continent of North America has seen in, during that time. They got outside of Petersburg, south of Richmond, after six weeks of protracted fighting, and uh, settled in there. The, the interesting thing to me was the letters that Brooke Rawl would send home for Petersburg, once they were kind of established in their, in their system there, they were getting to Philadelphia within two or three days. And he was receiving letters from Philadelphia that were written two or three days prior. It was amazing. So when the, when the Army was out actively campaigning, he, he mentions a couple times in his letters, I've not heard from you guys in three weeks. Um, and, and some of that happened around the Gettysburg campaign, but that was a direct result of the Army's mobility and the inability for the, um, the Postal Service really to keep up with the movements of the Army. But when they got into a static situation, Lake Petersburg, um, I, I'm just I'm amazed that that the, the rapidity with which the letters would get would which would would go back and forth between the home front and the soldiers in the field. You said that he left the University of Pennsylvania. He, he graduated at age 18. He did. did. You say he did. He did. Graduated at 18. Um, he was a, a very very uh, came from a long line of uh, Philadelphia lawyers. So he entered at 16. Graduated just before his not long before his 19th birthday. Um, so he got his a uh, he actually didn't get his, his, I'm sorry, his graduation ceremony took place while he was fighting on the field at Gettysburg. So he left before the graduation ceremony took place, but he did graduate. Why did he join the Army? Um, I think he felt uh, it simply, for, for, like many of the men in his, um, in his social class, um, although there were plenty on the other side of the ledger as well, he felt it was the right thing for him to do. He, he's, Brian, he's notably silent on a lot of his reasons behind why he should join the Army. Um, I, I think he just was compelled by a sense of duty. Um, he probably rightly saw it as the most, ment most momentous thing that was probably going to transpire in his lifetime, and in retrospect it was, but I think he saw it for what it was, and he felt like if he sat out, he would have regretted having done that. And it, did, did I, again, read it right, did he used family connections to get himself placed so in, partly, the, in the yes, Army? So partly, partly. I mean, he could have enlisted without a problem at any time, but um, there was a wealthy Philadelphian part of the Biddle family, Clement Biddle Barkley, um, who... Um, 
Similarly, for a number of other prominent Philadelphians, assisted them in getting commissions in regiments that were raised in Philadelphia. So Clement Biddle Barkley um, helped Brooke Rawl secure a commission in the 3rd Pennsylvania Cavalry. So there were, there were a couple of units that were populated um, with the upper levels of Philadelphia society. The 3rd Pennsylvania Cavalry was one, the 6th Pennsylvania Cavalry was another, and some of the earlier raised units. So this was, um, I'm sure it was a place that Clement Biddle Barkley felt good about placing Brooke Rawl because there were other, and I'm using my air quotes, gentlemen who populated the officer ranks of the 3rd Pennsylvania Cavalry. And uh, given his upbringing, given his wealth, given his pedigree, he, uh, he, fit, he fit right in with that, uh, that group of men. Did he enter the Army as an officer? He did. He did. He was commissioned directly from civil life. So, What did he know about being a soldier? He, uh, probably next to nothing. Um, I'm, I'm sure he did. He, he had actually tried unsuccessfully to raise a company on his own. Um, to join, he, he didn't specify what regiment it was, but he, he, he was not successful in that attempt. I have no doubt that in the, in the months leading up, he, he knew in the latter part of 1862 that he was going to be getting com a commission in the Army, so I have no doubt that he spent a lot of time reading books on tactics, reading books on, on, on movements, reading books on, on, on military protocols. That doesn't substitute for real experience, though. So I, I'm sure he took his book learning. He joined the Army. He actually joined the Army at a very good time. So they had just been, actually, unfortunately for the Army of the Potomac, severely handled at Chancellorsville. So a, a, not a good showing for Joseph Hooker and the Army, the Army of the Potomac at Chancellorsville, um, but had not yet embarked on the Gettysburg campaign. So and the 3rd Pennsylvania was at Chancellorsville? So, so the, actually, it's interesting. The, the, um, the cavalry was off on a raid. The cavalry was sent to raid in the Confederate rear and disrupt some other um, Confederate um, formations. So they were not actually at Chancellorsville itself or engaged at Chancellorsville, but they were, they were actually out of the lines for about 27 days during the Chancellorsville campaign. So when he reached the Army, they were kind of resting and refitting. And it actually provided a very good opportunity for him at that time. And he writes about it just to um, attend officer's school. The, 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 the colonel of the regiment was, um, was um, a, a former regular Army officer and really wanted to see to it that anybody knew who was commissioned in his regiment would be able to command the men and, and perform the duties that were expected of them. So there was a lot of practical learning um, and uh, book learning and actually tactics and things like that that took place um, during the, just in the, in the few short weeks right after he joined the Army. That was in Washington, D.C.? No, he, I, he actually start, He actually went from Philadelphia to Washington, only spent a day or two in Washington, and then took a train down to the Army of the Potomac, which was probably, it was in camp near Fredericksburg, actually, at this time, probably about five miles from Fredericksburg. They had set their winter camps up there. So after Chancellorsville, they basically returned to their winter camps, which were around Fredericksburg. And you said he was commanding people twice his age. He was. So he this 18-year-old kid comes in with no military yes. experience and yeah. is commanding people who have been in battles Ex before. Exactly. How'd that go? Uh, you know, for him, it actually went well. Um, I, I would, I, I, I know for a fact I've seen instances of it just in my studies where it did not go well for other officers. Um, the, the 3rd Pennsylvania Cavalry was a little bit unique in, as we talked about earlier. They commissioned um, officers directly from civil life. Now, they also did it, they also commissioned officers from their enlisted ranks. And um, based on my research, about 30 people who were sergeants in the regiment were commissioned. They became second lieutenants and then moved on up from there. Um, so it, 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 was a, it was a good transition for him. It actually went okay. Um, I've lost my train of thought there, but part of it is because he, um, because the regiment was so disciplined, because the regiment, for the, the first two commanding, actually the first, of the first three commanding officers of the regiment, two of them were former regular army officers. What that meant was that discipline was paramount in that regiment. So unlike the volunteer regiments where you could have some unruliness, you could have some disrespect. Um, the enlisted men in the 3rd Pennsylvania knew that if they stepped out of bounds, they would be punished for it, very much like 
the regular army did. And the punishments were severe. I mean, these are physical punishments. They could be bucked and gagged. They could be meant to, uh, you know, walk with heavy loads on their backs for several days at a time with just a minimum of rest. So I, I think the fact that um, there were regular army customs instilled within the 3rd Pennsylvania meant that when Brookwell got there, he by default commanded the respect of the men. The men knew they couldn't step out of line. One of the things, uh, looking through this book, you have some group photos that uh, yes. this gentleman, William Brook Rawl, is in. And the one thing that's distinctive about him is he's the one without the beard. He is. He is. Uh, he, it's, a, it's, a, it's a heavily bearded army. That's a, it's a great point. And, and he does there is mention by his mother. So, so when, when Brook Rawl returned to Philadelphia in August 1865, his mother writes Brook Rawl's grandmother that he's very sunburned and he has a beard but that he, I, th I think he will, shake, he will shave it off. Now, he never makes any mention in his, in his correspondence about having a beard, and I don't know, it, it could have been to combat his youthful experience, it could have been just for practicality, but uh, you're correct, at least mm -hmm. in, in the existing photographs of him, he is clean shaven, which was, um, which was strange in that army at that time, even among uh, the enlisted ranks. Beards and mustaches were, were the rage. You also say his name was not originally William Brook Rawl, but William Rawl Brook. Yes, yes, yes. So his father was a, a gentleman named Stephen Brook. He unfortunately passed away when William was young. William became very close with, obviously with his mother, who was left to, to, to raise him, became very close with his uncle. So, so um, Was his mother's name Rawl? She was. Mm -hmm. She was Rawl. So, so I, I mentioned, I, I think I mentioned maybe before we talked, he, he came from a long line of Philadelphia lawyers, and they were on both sides of his family. Um, the Rawl Law Firm still exists in Philadelphia today. Mm -hmm. I believe it was founded in, in the late 1600s, or no, actually the early 1700s, or maybe the mid-1700s, but wow. it's the oldest continual surviving law firm in the United States. So that was, that was his background. So his, his, his mother's brother was William Rawl, um, one of a, actually a line of William Rawls. He, um, he was an attorney. He was part of the Rawl law firm. Brooke Rawl was very close with him as well. I, I think the influence of his mother, and, and they didn't make him do it. I think just think the influence of his mother and his uncle um, made him gravitate more towards the Rawl name than anything else. I think it probably helped when he entered the Rawl law firm after, after uh, the war that he was, his last name was Rawl as well. Um, and it's how he, you know, until just after the war, he referred to himself as Rawl Brook. But from that point forward for the rest of his life, even in his published works that came out later, he refers to himself as William Brook Rawl. He, he also does mention, um, actually a relative mentioned uh, in a, in a, in a um, obituary written about him, that he changed the name to avoid, this is quotes, to avoid confusion in the family. Um, so there, there's a couple of different theories on it, but uh, I, I think it's probably because he gravitated more towards the Rawl side of the family. So when he got in the Army, what was the appeal of the cavalry? Uh, it was, it, they, were, they were the... Um, I don't want to call them the pretty boys of the time. They were, they were the shock troops. They were the elite forces of the time, if you will. So, so um, infantry was still king. It was um, what really most of the army was comprised of. But the, um, the gentlemen of the cavalry considered themselves um, apart from the infantry. They called them doughboys. Even then, they called them doughboys. And it's, it would seem like a term that would come up in, uh, in World War I. But they were, and and I've, I've come across infantrymen referring to themselves as doughboys during the Civil War. But um, it, just, it just had more appeal. You were riding, you weren't walking. Um, a lot more glamorous. Uh, early in the war, the, the cavalry um, kind of achieved a, uh, just an aura about them, uh, of being elite troops. So I think that's what appealed to him about it. How were the cavalry used? Uh, initially, not well. So, so actually, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a two-pronged answer. The, the Confederacy used their cavalry quite well. So they, they understood how the cavalry could be used for shock value, how the cavalry could be used for offensive operations. Um, George McClellan, who has his, his detractors and his, um, his people who, who think he's 
He's wonderful. Um, he was a former cavalryman, but uh, to, to distill the story, McClellan didn't really trust his volunteer cavalrymen. I want to read something you wrote about that. Yeah, sure. McClellan, who was an exceptional administrator, organizer, and leader, was confounded when it came to the utilization of his cavalry. One of his generals wrote in September 1862 that the Army commander knew precisely how to employ foot troops and cannoneers in battle, but that his mind went blank whenever horse soldiers entered the equation. Exactly. <laughs> now, the interesting thing, too, about that quote is that letter was written by a gentleman named Alfred Pleasanton. Now, the interesting thing about the letter is it was written to Randolph Marcy, who was McClellan's father-in-law. So here, here you have a general telling uh, McClellan's father-in-law that McClellan doesn't know anything about using cavalry. So again, I, th I think a lot of it stemmed from distrust. Not so much there were some, some there, there was a regular cavalry presence. There were, I think, five or six regular cavalry regiments that were assigned to the army. I believe McClellan entrusted them implicitly, but they weren't a large group. Most of the cavalry of the Army of the Potomac was volunteers. In McClellan's mind, and in some of the other officers of the regular army who served before the war, it took two or three years to develop and properly train and for a cavalryman to understand his duties. I think that that mindset influenced McClellan to say, I can't trust these guys. So what McClellan did early in the war is he let them get parceled out as orderlies, as, as uh, you know, provost marshals, to just kind of the police of the army and they weren't really used the same way that the Confederates used their cavalry. So when they finally figured out how to use them, how yeah. much of what they did was fighting and how much was kind of surveillance spying and how much was picket duty? Most of it was surveillance duty and picket duty, for sure, for sure. There weren't a, a, a tremendous number of opportunities, um, as there might have been for the infantry, for the cavalry to engage in battles. When they did engage, however, after, so McClellan left, Burnside came in, not a good fit, Hooker came in, and Hooker was the one who really revitalized the cavalry of the Army of the Potomac. So he said, I think I've got some good assets here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna form the cavalry corps. So, so up to that point in the war, they had, they had operated attached to infantry brigades and divisions, and it just was not an effective use of cavalry. Um, Hooker set them up on their own, and from that point forward, they were used effectively in battle. Really, Hooker formed the cavalry corps, uh, in late February or March of 1862, they fought at Kelly's Ford, but they're, they're, the place they proved themselves was at Brandy Station in early June. So, so, so for, from a timing standpoint, again, Brooke Roll joined the Army about three weeks before the Brandy Station battle. So he, he came into the cavalry at an excellent time for the Army of the Potomac. Did he know about horses? Could he ride when it's he a, got there? It's a great question. I don't know that. I, I assume he had just some passing familiarity with him. He was not a country boy by any stretch of the imagination, although the family, being wealthy, they had a country home out in Chester, Pennsylvania, so I'm sure he had some exposure to it there, but he lived in the city most of his life. So like many of the, the city boys who joined other uh, volunteer cavalry regiments, I'm sure he had some learning to do, but he, if he did, he, he doesn't express it. He doesn't say anything about a learning curve associated with horsemanship. Did he ever write about his horses? What kind of relationship he had? He with did. Them? He did. He writes. Uh, it's it's just p passing references. But he had you know, he had he had Satan. He had Carey. He had McClellan. He had a number of horses that it was clear he was he was fairly attached to. He had one called Pickaxe that went blind, and he had to go uh, go just let it go off the pasture. But one of his other troopers went and found Pickaxe and nursed Pickaxe back to health. So yeah, he was. You could tell there's a cavalryman's attachment to his horses. As a matter of fact, um, when, he, when they were leaving Richmond, they occupied Richmond at the end of, uh, after the war, um, for a couple of months they were in, in, in Richmond. And he, um, he sold off a couple of horses, but there were two he couldn't bear to let go, so he took them back to Philadelphia with him after the war. Now, you were listed as the editor of this book. Yes. So what is involved in putting a book together other than transcribing and printing the the letters. That's a great question. So, so, so um, this is the th actually the third book I've edited. So I've got I've got a little bit of uh, experience with the editing process. It, it, it's really about making um, the letters readable for 
um, the reader, if you will. So um, what I do is, for the most part, I'm, I'm, I'm reading through the letters. Um, and I had the, in this instance, I had the letters and the diary. So um, I didn't want to just throw it all in there together. There were things mentioned in the letters that weren't mentioned in the diaries and vice versa. There was stuff that was repetitive. So part of the process was culling out what was unique to each of the sources, including all the new, unique pieces in the letters themselves. Um, really, my, my job from that point is um, adding chapter introductions, adding transitional material. So if he explains something or he's, he's moved on to somewhere else and it's not clear to the reader, I add those. And then we talked a little bit briefly before the interview about footnotes and endnotes. So I spent... Um, a lot of my time, really, it's just explaining what is happening, who he's dealing with, the outcome of battles, and things like that. And then, of course, an introduction. So that, that's really the editor's role, is to make the, the letters or whatever the, the editor is conveying more readable to the reader. Did you have to go back and check to make sure the things he was writing were factually correct? Very much so. Very much so. So, so that, that was more so, and I know we're not here to talk about a prior book. The prior book was a memoir written, written well after the war. Um, and and that's, that could be subject to a lot of hindsight and, oh, I was there for this and I was there for this. And I, I found some glaring instances in that memoir that were not true and had to call them out. In this instance, this is why I lo love dealing with letters because I mentioned three books. The very first book was a book of letters also. They just have an immediacy. But, but the thing is they, they can be very narrow in scope. So uh, an example, the first book I wrote about was a Pennsylvania infantryman who fought in the wheat field at Gettysburg. All he could see was what went on 30 feet in front of him through, through, through powder smoke. He wrote very honestly about what he saw, but it was clear that what he saw wasn't necessarily accurate. And that's where I would come in and say, okay, well, this is what he thinks he saw here, but this is what actually happened. So the letters have an immediacy about them that I think is just, uh, it's very fresh. It's, it's just, a, it's a great perspective. And especially if it's someone like Brooke Rawl who is educated and can write very well, it, it makes it that much better. What did you learn about him as a person reading his letters? It, it, you know, again, it's, 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 it's tough to... So, so prior subjects, they revealed a lot th about themselves. He, him, not so much. And I think it's probably a, a function of his, the blue-blooded side of him, the, the, the kind of the upper caste where, you know, it's not great to show emotion. I mean, he writes letters. What, what, what was left in Philadelphia was his mother and his sisters. So he's writing letters back to them. These are not blood and guts letters. And I think that's partly because he didn't want his, his mother and his sisters to worry about him. I think it's partly because um, you know, he wanted, didn't want to offend their sensibilities. But you know what I can say to your question, Brian, is he was um, um, he was he was very observant. Um, he was uh, opinionated, which is good. But he didn't let his opinionate he didn't let his opinions out very much. He let them out in his letters, but he didn't manifest them to, to to other folks out there. So I think, you know, probably he's best described as reserved, maybe even a little bit austere um, and aloof. But I think that that's par again part of the regular army bent of this regiment lends itself to that kind of behavior from, on his part. You do write, uh, like many of those in Meade's orbit, Rawl resented the plaudits that Lieutenant General Ulysses Grant received during the battles in 1864 to 65. You quote him as saying, Meade does all the fighting here and Grant gets all the credit, he yeah. complained to yeah. his mother in yeah. a letter. Yes, yes. Did he let on other opinions about the war, about Lincoln, about McClellan? He, he, he did, he did. Well, so McClellan was before him, so not, so not very much about McClellan. Um, you know, a historian named John Hennessy has, has coined a term for people like Brooke Rawl. So they, they, he calls them conservative patriots. So they were, um, at that time, and again, the meaning has changed over years, he was probably in spirit a Democrat. He was not necessarily um, sympathetic to abolition, if you will. So he, 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 was, he expresses some very, you know, they're, 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 they're difficult opinions to read in, in our day and age about African-American people. It's just, it, he, he um, you know, politically, he 
these conservative patriots as a whole, and, and, I, and I lump Brooke Rowland as one of them, um, they eventually, they like McClellan because McClellan was the anti-Lincoln, if you will. So McClellan ran against Lincoln on a peace at any cost platform in 1864. Um, most of these conservative patriots came to see that the, that um, Lincoln, the election of Lincoln and upholding the principles of Lincoln was the quickest way to defeat the Confederacy. So I think that while sympathetic in spirit, and I write this in the book, to McClellan, he saw that a vote for Lincoln was the surest and quickest way to bring an end to the war. And I think a lot of people who held his point of view felt the same way. A lot of the soldiers in the Army felt the same way. What was the first fighting he saw? The first fighting was at um, the Battle of Brandy Station. So he joined the Army. He got there from Washington on May 16th. And on June 9th, uh, they fought at the Battle of Brandy Station, which is actually one of the largest, and again, there's some debate about whether it is the largest, but one of the largest all-cavalry battles of the war. And it actually was the first battle in the East that the Union Army, or the, the, the Army of the Potomac, if you will, uh, was really able to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with um, their, um, their adversaries in the Army of Northern Virginia and Jeb Stuart's cavalry. So he was actually involved away from the scene of the main fighting. The main fighting took place at a, uh, at a place called Fleetwood Hill, which is very near Brandy Station. Him and, uh, him and the force that the 3rd Pennsylvania Cavalry were attached to were sent kind of on an ancillary mission off on the flank. So, um, you know, he experienced some fighting, and he writes about it. He writes about the whiz of the cannonballs and the bullets, but his first um, really real combat that he um, experienced was at Gettysburg which happened about f uh, three or four weeks after, after Brandy Station. I read one thing you wrote sure. about. He, he said, I had a fatal accident in my company. Private Hartenstein fell dead at my feet. Mm -hmm. uh, he had omitted to draw the cartridge from his carbine after returning this morning, and uh, it went off, and the ball entered his mouth and went out the top of his head. He fell dead without a sound. Then a couple sentences later, and said, we, he said, we amuse ourselves in the evening by singing and playing the flute and the banjo for accompaniment. Is that amazing? He, he kind of shifted gears pretty quickly. He sure did, didn't he? And, 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 and I would expect that. That was surprising to me as well. I would expect that from, some, honestly, I would expect that from someone that had been in the Army for two years because that would, it would have been someone who have been in, would have been inured to the sight uh, of, you know, dead comrades. The fact that he was able to, you know, kind of change, change gears in the midst of his letter after one of his company accidentally shot himself is, is fascinating to me as well. You said that he didn't, write home about uh, some of the gruesome stuff that he saw. Did he put any of that in his diary? He, 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 not so much. No, not so much. And, and again, I, I, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good call out. So you would think maybe he would confide some of that to his diary. I mean, you think about what he probably experienced and what he saw um, in the Overland campaign. So that was when Grant and Meade crossed the Potomac uh, in, in, early, in, in early May of 1864. I mean, the carnage that took place between uh, you know, the battles in the wilderness, Spotsylvania, uh, North Anna, Cold Harbor. I mean, in, at Cold Harbor, you had 7,000 Union guys sh shot down in a matter of hours. And um, he, do he just touches on it very lightly. So he, he I, you know, not, not sure, not sure. You, you would think he would confide more to his diary about that, and he didn't. But um, again, in his letters, there was certainly self some self-censorship applied. Did he make friends with fellow officers? He did. And, and did he lose close friends? He uh, Actually, yes, that's a great question. He, he did. He, uh, he made very good friends with several of the officers, although he does note that he, um, uh, he has spats with, with one or two of them every once in a while, but like, like any, like, like, they're like brothers almost. So brothers would have spats, and they would dissolve their mess, and one of them would move out of the tent, move in with someone else, and then, and then, they, and then they would make up later. Um, what was, I'm sorry, the other part of the question was, Brian? Um, did he uh, get along with his uh, fellow he did. He did. officers, and did he lose any of them? He That's did. It. He did. That's it's a great question. I'm sorry. So, so when he joined the 3rd Pennsylvania, he was one of three officers that were commissioned at that time from civil life. 
Um, the other two, ironically, were both University of Pennsylvania students as well. So one of them, um, and I'm drawing a blank on this, is George Ward, uh, Elwood Davis is his name. He was also from a, a very wealthy, very patrician Philadelphia family. Um, he accompanied Brooke Rawl to the 3rd Pennsylvania. He actually took sick at the Gettysburg campaign and came back to the regiment um, in the fall of 1863. Probably within two or three weeks of him coming back to the regiment, he was, he was killed um, in some rear guard action associated with uh, something called the, the Bristow Station campaign. So yes, he did lose. He lost people in his company. Again, he doesn't really express very, very much um, regret over that, um, but he was, he was shaken up by the death of his good friend, Elwood Davis. Interestingly, you know, for, for, for a regiment that, 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 has, that really, there were eight cavalry regiments on the peninsula with McClellan in 1862, so the 3rd Pennsylvania Cavalry was one of them. Elwood Davis, who got killed in October 1863, was actually only the first officer that ever got killed in the 3rd Pennsylvania. So even though they were in, in the midst of some very heavy actions, um, they, they led a little bit of a charm life, they did. Um, you know, eventually, we'll talk about it later, they got assigned to the headquarters of the Army of the Potomac, so they weren't really in the thick of the fighting anymore. They became provost marshals and policemen, and they were charged with escorting prisoners and picking up stragglers, so that lent itself to the fact that they wouldn't experience heavy casualties. When they were involved in fighting, like uh, you said, Brandy Station was an all-cavalry. Yes. What, what weapons did they use? What, did they fight on horseback? Or they fought they... on horseback, um, a lot of carbines. So oh, you do a, uh, use a line in the book that it's when they lined up, it was almost medieval in appearance. Well, and that was that was yes, and that was a reference to the uh, the Confederates at Gettysburg when they when they kind of came out. Uh, there was a there's a, a part of the field called um, it's it's the East Cavalry Field, which is preserved very nicely these days. But the the cavalry was concealed in a wood on the north end of the battle of the cavalry battlefield, and uh, Jeb Stuart saw an opportunity to rush into the to the rear of the Union Army and create some havoc there. Um, but he came out with. I want to say between 3,000 and 3,500 men on horseback. The, 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 the roar that just those horses trundling down that open field must have produced would have been amazing. But yeah, carbines, um, pistols, and, 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 and sabers. A lot of, uh, there's, there's a, there are a number of instances where uh, at Gettysburg, members of the 3rd Pennsylvania were um, you know, cut down by sabers. So the, the, the combat was very close. Did he have much personal interaction with people like George Custer or any of his generals? Uh, not, not a lot. Not a lot, although he does. I mean, he, he mentions uh, Winfield Scott Hancock, a, a Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, actually not Philadelphia, he was born and raised in Norristown, uh, but he was the commander of the Second Corps. He mentions uh, an interview with him. He, he mentions infrequently talking to um, members of Meade's staff, but, but of the higher-ups, not very, not very much um, interaction with the higher-ups. I want to ask you about something else, jumping around a little sure, bit. Um, uh, late in the war, the... Um, the eight undersized companies of the 3rd Pennsylvania Cavalry would be combined with four companies to form the battalion of the 5th Pennsylvania Cavalry, yeah. and that caused a lot of problems. You say the only historian who ever ventured to write about the 5th Pennsylvania Cavalry, Edward Longacre, concluded that the unit achieved a record of failures, defeats, setbacks, and disasters probably unequaled by any other regiment, that the 5th had suffered the humiliating distinction of having lost its colors not once but twice. The colors were very, very, very important symbols to these regiments, whether it was an infantry regiment or a cavalry regiment. I mean, that was their pride and joy. As a matter of fact, you see um, Union soldiers, when, they, when, they, when they're able to capture um, Confederate colors on the field of battle, it's an occasion for an awarding of a Medal of Honor. So, so they were of immense symbolic importance. So, so, yeah, getting back to what you said in the beginning, the 5th Pennsylvania Cavalry was um, certainly a substandard outfit. And it, it probably stemmed from poor leadership, 
Uh, it, it stemmed from where the, the regiment was assigned during the war. It really was relegated to the backwater of the conflict. So to condense it, when the 3rd Pennsylvania Cavalry found themselves combined with the 5th Pennsylvania Cavalry and really absorbed, if you will, by the 5th Pennsylvania Cavalry after the war, it was not a happy marriage. You said that uh, Gettysburg was the thing for... Uh, for Brooke Roll. For Brooke Roll. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It was... It was his, in, in an obituary, and I, and I mentioned in the book, uh, a relative, a close relative defined it or, or described it as the defining experience of his life. So even though he'd only been in the Army for probably seven or eight weeks at that time, um, it stayed with him. And, it, and he even refers to it um, in, in later letters about different things about their experiences at Gettysburg. So um, he knew of the importance of Gettysburg as a whole to the war. Um, he knew the importance the, of the cavalry field and the cavalry battle there. And he really made it um, a big part of his life's work after the war to study um, the cavalry battle there. So, you know, I mentioned that his, his, his letters and his diary and some of his photographs are at the Abraham Lincoln Foundation of the Union League. There's, um, there's a folder of correspondence, probably, I want to say, maybe 200 or 300 different pieces of correspondence relating to his study of the battle of Gettysburg, the cavalry battle at Gettysburg after the war. So he corresponded with, you know, Union, union soldiers, Union officers he served with. He corresponded with many of the Confederates that were there on the field and really built a nice archive up, and it allowed him to publish, I want to say, five or six different studies about the cavalry battle at Gettysburg in the years after the war. Where was he at Gettysburg? So he was in the East Cavalry Field. A great question. So if, you, if you're looking at Gettysburg, it's, it's, it's out to the, uh, to the east. Um, it's, it's preserved very, very nicely. Um, he was on uh, a part of the um, cavalry field, uh, sh sh uh, sheltered in, in a woods. They call it Lot's Woods there. But his regiment was on the flank of, we, we talked about Jeb Stewart's column charging down the field earlier. Well, the 3rd Pennsylvanians had been ordered to hold the woods at any cost and not leave that location. When they saw 3,000-plus three, 3, Confederate cavalrymen charging down the field, Right across their front, it was a little bit too much for them. So Brooke Rawl and his fellow officer conversed. Um, the, the officer said to Brooke Rawl, if I order a charge, will you support me? Um, Brooke Rawl said, I will follow you till hell, in his own words, he said, I'll follow you till hell freezes over. So they were able to help blunt the force of the Confederate charge by literally charging into the flank of the Confederate column as it passed along their front. And the officer who he supported ended up winning the Medal of Honor for his actions at Gettysburg that day. How many people and how many horses were in the 3rd Pennsylvania? Good question. Now, on paper, 1,200. Probably at Gettysburg, closer to 400 um, because of a, a lot of factors. You know, disease, death, obviously the horses break down. Um, from the time they left uh, Virginia um, uh, on their march on the Gettysburg campaign, the regiment lost 72 horses. So horses were breaking down all over the place. Brooke Rawl walked his horse uh, for much of the much of the time in the two days preceding his, his entry to the environs of Gettysburg. He led his horse by the bridle, which probably is not a great thing to do on a, uh, you know, a 70, 80, 90 degree day in the summer. You're walking 11, 12, 13 miles. Now, infantrymen, some of them in the Sixth Corps marched 25, 30 miles uh, to get to the Gettysburg battlefield in the course of a single day. So I do, don't have a lot of sympathy for Brooke Rawl, but it probably was not an easy job to do that. So what exactly was Brooke Rawl's job? Really just overseeing his men. So how, he, how many men? So at Gettysburg, you know, again, the, 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 the regiment had been fairly severely depleted. I don't know the exact number, but I would venture to say probably between 30 and 40 men in his company. And he was put into a squadron that I mentioned, the, the, uh, the captain that commanded the squadron, Captain Miller. So uh, two companies generally formed a squadron. So in the squadron of men at Gettysburg, probably you know, 80 or 90 guys, including the officers, were part of that squadron. But Brooke Rawl was commanding his company at Gettysburg as a second lieutenant who'd been there for eight weeks and probably was in charge of 30 or 40. What was the result of the East Cavalry battle? Uh, essentially a stalemate. 
uh, if you will, the Gettysburg. But that was good for the Union, because if, if they had not been able to blunt um, uh, Stuart's thrust into what was essentially the rear of the Union Army, they could have gotten in among the supply trains. They, the, the Baltimore Pike was seen as the main line of retreat by Meade to get, in case something befell them, to get back. They would have been able to cut off Meade's line of retreat. It would have been, uh, it would have been um, a very interesting outcome had Jeb Stuart been able to penetrate the rear of the Union Army. So when the battle was over, where did the 3rd Pennsylvania go? They, um, they, they actually, um, there's a part of the battlefield who you're, you're probably familiar with um, called Little Round Top. So they went down kind of in the area um, in front of Little Round Top and just picketed there for, for about a day or two. But then they undertook the pursuit, as most of the cavalry did, undertook the pursuit of, of, um, of the Army of Northern Virginia, hmm. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. So the 6th Corps was one of the Union Corps that had been lightly engaged at Gettysburg. They kind of led the spearhead um, chasing after um, Lee. And uh, the 3rd Pennsylvania went along with the 6th Corps. Um, through the passes of the Blue Ridge to try to chase down the, uh, the Confederates. When did you get interested in the Civil War? That's a great question. I was, uh, I was a student at Villanova uh, in the 80s and just started reading. I mentioned uh, Bruce Catton. I started reading some books about Bruce Catton. So since the mid-80s, um, outside of my professional responsibilities, a lot of what I've done has, has revolved around the study of the Civil War. Why is it so interesting? <sighs> I, I, just the human, the, the human side of it. Um, what these men went through, what they endured, um, kind of the courage that it probably took to stand up um, and, and to an enemy you could see, that both sides armed with rifle mu rifled muskets that, that, that were capable of creating such devastation uh, on a human, and um, w what it took to, to, to compel these men to, to do this. I mean, they, these, are, these are young men, um, you know, from 19 to, to 40, but average age, I think, is around 24 years old. Who you know left their homes? They left their families. They left what they knew to uh, to, to sacrifice, and I think that's uh, I think that's endlessly fascinating. And Brooke Roll had relatives on the other side. He did. He did. He had a, a cousin in a famous uh, regiment. Uh, from sorry, a famous uh, unit of the Confederate Army, the Army of Northern Virginia. He had. A, uh, it was in the Stonewall Brigade, which is somewhat interesting because um, the Third Pennsylvania Cavalry got to Gettysburg on the evening of July second. And one of the other regiments of, of the Cavalry Corps got into a little bit of a tangle with some Confederates who were trying to kind of come up on Culp's Hill. So anyway, the 3rd Pennsylvania Cavalry was sent to reinforce this, this regiment. And um, he was, Brooke Rawl didn't know it, but he was facing the Stonewall Brigade at that time. So they were, uh, Brooke Rawl probably wasn't actively trading shots, the men probably were, but there, there was a time there where he probably faced his cousin, the, the gentleman's name was Mordecai Lewis, who was uh, a part of the, uh, the 2nd Virginia Infantry of the Stonewall Brigade. And then he had, um, he had a, uh, an uncle who was, in, um, who was in a Louisiana brigade. He became a, a quartermaster. And then an, uh, another cousin who actually, ironically, attended the University of Pennsylvania with him, um, was from Mississippi. So when war broke out, he went back to Mississippi, but got captured at Vicksburg. So he had some, he had some ties on the, uh, on the Confederate side. He ended up in Warrington, Virginia that was, for some time? That's right. So the winter of 1863 to 1864, he spent uh, in the environs of, of Warrington, Virginia, which is a beautiful, it's a be still a beautiful town, but even then it was, a, it was one of the more established towns in that part of Virginia. Did the fighting just stop then over it, the winter? It pretty much did, except for, you know, again, you, you talked to me, uh, we talked earlier about the role of cavalry. I mean, they were constantly on the move. So they were picketing, they were looking for openings, they were... Um, you know, um, Mosby's guerrillas were very active, John, John Mosby. Um, they were very active, especially around that Warrenton area, in either trying to just, you know, randomly pick off Union pickets and vedettes, a vedette is a mounted picket, um, to gain intelligence about the Army, um, just to create havoc. And, and the cavalry was the, were the ones that were assigned with keeping Mosby at bay. So it was a, 
it was a trying time for most of the cavalrymen of the, of the Army of the Potomac in the winter of 1863 to 64 because they had to be, the infantry were mostly sedentary in their camps, but the cavalry had to be on guard. And he said that the, the Warrenton area was pretty hot for secession. He did. He did. It was a very, um, you know, you had a regiment of, or actually there was a company of cavalry, but several regiments of infantry that were raised around there. So, yeah, the, the, there was very little unionist feeling, if you will, in, in, in Warrenton. If you get into some of the other sections of what, what is now West Virginia and other parts of Virginia, you would have some union sentiment. But towns like Winchester and Warrenton and Culpeper, again, they're, they're the heart of the Confederacy, even though they weren't that far south. Um, and they were, you know, again, they, they supported their cause. So they are in Warrenton. It's the winter. There's no fighting going on, yes. not, not major fighting right. going on. And they're going to be there for months. How did they spend the time? Bored. So, so, so there were a number of leaves that were granted um, for, for soldiers to visit back home. Brookwall took advantage of one of those. A lot of card playing, um, some gambling for the enlisted men. He was a little bit more um, upright than that. He was a bit of a teetotaler, teetotaler, so he didn't really drink very much, if at all. I haven't been able to determine that much. He liked pipe tobacco. He made friends with uh, several of the residents of Warrenton, so he became very close with a reverend and his family there, and he would visit them, attended church in Warrenton. Um, so, again, a lot of... Just to, you know, again, in, 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 a, in a chapter of another book that I wrote, uh, it, it was also regarding that time in Warrington, I, I entitled it Boredom and Idleness, because that's what a lot of that winter was for. When they weren't out on picket, um, they would usually do three days on and then four days off, and three days on and four days off. So uh, the time on picket, however, he was, um, it comes through in his letters, he doesn't state it, but he was terrified. You know, especially in, in, in the fall of 1863 when they had just gotten there, he's still very new to the Army. You have, you know, you, you have random cavalrymen who are out, you know, just kind of surveying the countryside, getting either shot um, or, or wounded or taken prisoner every single day. And he's, he writes at night it was, it was a nerve-wracking experience because he never knew what to expect. What would he have been like to be around? Again, I think, um, I think a little bit aloof, I believe. A little bit, you know, again, genteel. I, I, and again, I, I may be ascribing too much to his upbringing. Um, I don't know that he would have been warm and, and, and opening and, and, and open, if you will. But, um, you know, I don't think he would have been unfriendly. But I, I think that part of it is, is just the way he was raised. And I think, um, you know, a little bit standoffish. A good example is, you know, I, I mentioned the regular Army customs that were in place in the 3rd Pennsylvania Cavalry. For Brooke Rawl to talk to a, an enlisted man without orders was unheard of. So unless that man had a reason to come talk to Brooke Rawl on official business, it was literally frowned upon for there to be any interaction whatsoever between the officers and the men because it was modeled after the regular army. That's how, it, that's, how, that's how the relations existed in the regular army. The enlisted men were not allowed to talk to officers unless it was on official business. Can you talk about the distinction between the, between the regular army and the volunteers? Sure. So the volunteers obviously were people from the cities and towns that enlisted for a finite period of time. So the regulars were part of the regular army of the United States. Many of the regulars, although they enlisted, you, you could volunteer from... Um, you could volunteer from civil life to go into the regular army, and there was, there, was, there was quite a bit of that that went on during the Civil War. It's just that they were considered professional soldiers. They, they were, they were so, and even though some of the, the enlistments were for a finite period of time, even if um, the war ended, they would have been expected to stay in the service, where it was understood that if the, if the war ended during the volunteer's term of enlistment, after a period of time, they would be allowed to go home. 
and he was able to go home uh, during the winter as a, a break? He was. There were a couple of, a couple of instances, I, th I want to say four or five instances during his time in the service where he was able to, um, he was able to get leave and go home. And actually, I, which was very interesting to me given kind of what a law and order guy he seems like. One of his leaves, he does write about it. He, um, he snuck away. He escorted some prisoners to Washington, went to a friend's house, cut the uniform buttons off his coat and had them replaced with civilian buttons and then scooted home for two days. He called it, a, it was called at the time, a French leave. But he even writes, he goes, I took a French leave. So I, I dashed home from Washington to see the family. No one missed me, and I, I, I went back. Wasn't he also present for the hanging of some deserters? Yes, although many in the Army were for a lot of that. So that was, uh, that was not an uncommon occurrence. So what he did was not considered deserting? It, it, it could have been. Now, now um, what you find in a lot of these instances is that officers were given a lot of leeway. And, and it's... It's not very egalitarian, if you will. So, so you're right. If an enlisted man had been caught doing the same thing, there could have been a very good chance that that enlisted man would be hanged. You know, likewise, uh, uh, officers were pretty much allowed to resign whenever they wanted to. So if someone kind of said, this isn't for me, or I'm a little bit too much afraid, or you know, I had a lot too much to drink last night, and I passed out, and my commanding officer saw me, they were given the opportunity to resign. Um, and whereas the enlisted men were, were usually punished, usually, punished fairly severely for the same infractions. At one point, he got a uh, promotion to lieutenant, the first lieutenant, and he writes a letter saying, please take the enclosed first lieutenant shoulder straps to Lamberti's yes. and have them made into, uh, oh, into a captain's. Yes. That is, have the additional bar on each end put on, right. exactly like the other, which means that the wearer is a big cav cavalry captain. Yes. Please send them to me as soon as possible. It will save me six or eight dollars. Right. So he had to send his uniform home to have the stripes So, So on? what he did, he took the straps off. So they were shoulder straps. He just took those off. He mailed them home. So mm -hmm. the first lieutenant's bars would, be, would, have, been, um, would have been silver bars. Um, one silver bar, and he just added another silver bar to each of the shoulder straps to denote that he was a captain instead of buying new ones. Now, here's a man who, again, he was fairly wealthy. You know, actually, for the time, he was incredibly wealthy. And it wasn't maybe necessarily his money at the time. It was more of his family's money. So, but, you know, in an effort to save the 6 or $8, he sent the shoulder straps home and had them repaired. He did the same thing once with, with a, a part of his gun. He sent a part of his gun home to his mother and said, hey, can you get this fixed for me? It's not working for me, and I, and I really need it. And she, and she went and did it. But he had a, bit, he had a lot of fun with that with the piece with the gun because it apparently would have been almost unheard of at that time for a woman to walk into a gunsmithing shop and say, hey, I need this, this, this piece for, for this pistol. Well, he also was a, f a collector of photographs, he was. you say, and he, he used to mail those home all the time. So, the, again, the mail was pretty reliable. It was pretty reliable. It really was. Um, yeah, he, he, um, and he writes uh, a lot about... Um, it seems like in almost every second or third letter he's writing enclosed as a photograph of so-and-so, enclosed as a photograph of so-and-so. Um, you know, all those photographs ended up, um, long story short, when, when I first started uh, uh, my activities at the Civil War Library and Museum, his photographic albums, they're called CDVs, Cartes de Visite, um, his albums are part of the collection of that, and, and, and it still resides over at, um, now at the Abraham Lincoln Foundation. But I don't know how it happened, but they, they kind of got plundered over time. So when I saw the when I when I first saw the albums, probably in the early '90s, the late '80s, there were a lot of photographs missing from there. Um, kind of an interesting side note, though, he um, in the post-war years he stamped the back of these of these carts with a with his name, it said William Brook Rawl with his address on it. And you know, on a whim, once I, f I found one that was being sold by a collector. So the, the the short story is, there's probably 20 or 30 or 40 William Brook Rawl owned carte de visites out there with his ink stamp ownership on the back, but they've unfortunately disappeared from his collection. Any of his photographs in your book? Yes, yes. Uh, oh, oh, of his own. 
I thought you meant of him. No, no, uh, just the one that I was able to buy. So it's, it's actually the, the, probably the, it's in the first chapter. There's a gentleman named Edwin Heil, H-E-Y-E-L. And that's the, that was, that carte de visite was owned by Brooke Rawl. I paid a, you know, a small sum for, uh, to get that, my hands on that myself. Um, but yeah, that's included in the book. So he ended up uh, after Warrington going to Petersburg. He did. So the Overland campaign first. So hmm. Warrington um, spent some spent a lot of time near Warrington. So during that time, so um, the Third Pennsylvania was part of the Cavalry Corps of the Army of the Potomac up until March of 1864, when um, it was decided that they were going to get assigned to Meade's headquarters. So they were taken really out of the active fighting, cavalry fighting, assigned to Meade's headquarters as part of the Provo Marshal Brigade. So they, again, their responsibilities changed in that they, w they went from actually active cavalry fighting to policing, um, escorting prisoners back to Washington. Um, during, during, during the wilderness, as a matter of fact, there's some accounts from other sources of members of the 3rd Pennsylvania kind of driving up stragglers, so guys who had fallen out of battle or, or, or were, you know, just kind of trying to hide. They went in and kind of shoved them back into battle. So they had a number of different, and they, they guarded the, there was beef on the hoof for the Army of the Potomac. They guarded the, the, the beef herd for the Army of the Potomac. So their, their responsibilities and, and, and their functions were very, very different from what they had experienced up to that point in the war, from that point forward. So they were part of that campaign, but they weren't really in the thick of the action from March of 1864 forward. So they were part of the, the siege at Petersburg? They were. They were, absolutely, yeah. How long did that last? So, so um, the Army of the Potomac arrived outside of Petersburg and settled in about the second week of June, and the siege was lifted on April 2nd, 1865, when um, Lee's li lines just became untenable. His, his lines got stretched too thin. Grant knew it. He saw an advantage and, uh, and took advantage of it and sprung some assaults on the Petersburg lines, which then caused Richmond to fall and a, and a, and a massive uh, exodus out west for the forces from Richmond and Petersburg. So that was another winter. It was a winter at Petersburg. Which um, again, same same kind of thing as as at Warrenton, passed fairly comfortably. There was some active campaigning during the winter, though, and and, and it's kind of interesting. I, you know, I mentioned that they were part of the Provo Marshal Brigade. They shed their responsibilities on a couple of instances and went into active fighting. You say uh, he describes the uh, the Battle of the Crater. Yes. In one of his letters, and does not say some. It says some uncomplimentary things about the black soldiers. And that's his racist there. overtones coming out, I think. And, and it was, it was, it's unfortunate, first of all. Um, I also think it's misguided, because if, if you study the Battle of the Crater, um, you know, what originally happened there is, is the African-American troops were scheduled to lead the assault. Um, and then Meade, about three days before, and they, and they were specifically trained for it. Three days before the assault, Meade was concerned that if they were slaughtered in the course of this, it would reflect badly on him and the Army and the Lincoln administration, he decided to replace white troops um, with, with the, with the African-Americans who were going to lead the charge. Um, in the offing, what happened was, you know, the crater, the, 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 the crater was sprung. It was a massive, uh, a massive pit was formed. A breach in the lines was, um, was formed as, as they desired. Leadership was, was horrible. Uh, union leadership at the, at the divisional and brigade level was lacking. And, 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 and to make a long story short, really, instead of rushing around the edges of the crater, uh, many of the troops rushed into the crater where they were shot down. And um, Brooke Rawl blamed, the, many in the Army of the Potomac blamed the reverse on the African-American troops. You know, in hindsight, you know, there were congressional hearings, there was a, a hearing in the Army. It was clear that it wasn't the fault of the black troops. Where was Brooke Rawl when Lee surrendered? He was at Meade's headquarters. So, so as, oh, I'm sorry, yes, he was, he was. Uh, about, um, probably about 10 miles east of Appomattox Courthouse. So that's where Meade was at the time. Meade, Meade was sick for a lot of the um, pursuit of Lee. 
Grant was still mobile on horseback. Meade rode in an ambulance for a lot of the pursuit of Lee from Petersburg. And as part of Meade's headquarter guard, Brookwall would have been with General Meade, the commander of the Army of the Potomac. Did he write about the, the surrender or what the, what the reaction was when it, the war was over? It just, just relief. And he didn't see any of really the surrender ceremonies. But he does write, he does have some full letters. I, I kept the letters going up through May 15th. He re really essentially writes about how the countryside was just covered with dejected rebels making their way home. Did he know the war was over at that point? He did. He did. He's, and he's, matter of fact, he went to find his, um, his relatives. So he went to try to find his uncle in the Louisiana Brigade. Um, he actually yeah, he rode into the midst of Lee's army with, with just an orderly with him. Um, and um, he, he says, in, in, in hindsight and retrospect, it probably wasn't the smartest thing to do because feelings were still raw. I think he did it on the 10th of April, so the day after Lee actually formally surrendered. And they still had guns. They, absolutely. Absolutely. How long did he stick around in the in the Virginia area after? So, so in Virginia, probably until um, mid to late May, and then they were moved into Richmond as as provost guard. So it's like occupation. Forces. Exactly, exactly. So really, like he he characterizes them as mounted street police, which he was not very happy with. Um, their rations were poor. Um, it was exceedingly hot. Um, he said their pay was irregular. So it was just. And, and, and again, that was where the combination with the 5th Pennsylvania Cavalry took place. So it was altogether an unhappy time for most of the people of 3rd Pennsylvania Cavalry. But he only stayed there till August when what, what was then the 5th Pennsylvania Cavalry, again, containing elements of the 3rd Pennsylvania Cavalry, was mustered out of the service in August of 1865. Did he keep his diary going for the rest of his life, or did it stop right It's, it's a great question. And I'd, I'd love to know if he kept a diary before. I haven't been able to find anything about that. So, so if, if it does exist, I haven't been able to find it. I'd, I'd love to see his diaries in the months and years leading up to the war as well, if one exists. But all that has survived has literally been from the day he got on the train in Philadelphia to go to Washington until he mustered out of the service here in Philadelphia in August of 65. So August of 65, so it was four months or so after the yes. end of the war. Yes. What did he do with the rest of his life? He, uh, he was unsure. He, he, for a while, he toyed with the idea of becoming a regular Army officer. So he we wanted to be a regular cavalryman. Ironically, he was offered a commission in the 7th U.S. Cavalry, which was decimated at Little Bighorn. Mm. So not to say he would have still been with them that, that then. It, it actually took a year for the commission to come through. Um, by that time, I think he had decided to move on with his life. Again, he came from a long line of attorneys. So he became an attorney himself. He studied law under his uncle, who we mentioned earlier, became an attorney, and um, a fairly successful one. He, did, he, he wasn't a, a litigator. He did wills and trusts. Um, and also, he was very heavily involved with the Historical Society of Pennsylvania with his Gettysburg studies. So, so those were the main things in his life going forward. Married uh, uh, a woman with the last name of Pepper, um, who came from a line of uh, Philadelphia physicians. If they had any children, there's, or, they, or whether they died in childbirth or anything like that, there's no record of any children having been born uh, to Brooke Rawl and his wife. And he wrote a book? He wrote several studies, um, not a book, but several um, you know, uh, pamphlet-length length studies, if you will, about the Battle of Gettysburg. So, so in 1876, the Philadelphia Weekly Times started uh, getting nostalgic about the war, and, and they commissioned people to write about various aspects of the war for inclusion in the newspaper. That was turned into a book. So his first account of the Battle of Gettysburg came in there, but then he wrote probably four or five subsequent studies of the cavalry fighting at Gettysburg throughout the course the rest of his life. You say uh, toward the end of the book, in December 1867, Major General Marcina Patrick yes. wrote to General Ulysses Grant in support of a brevet promotion for Rawl. Yes. Meade endorsed, General, General George Meade endorsed Patrick's recommendation, stating that from personal knowledge, I take pleasure in concurring General Patrick's letter. So did Meade know who... 
role was? He did, and part of it part of it was I'm sure that Raw was at Meade's headquarters, although he doesn't record any conversations with Meade. Meade was very friendly with, um, uh, I'm sorry, Raw was very friendly with Meade's son. So Meade's son was part of Meade's staff. Meade's son was um, part of the 6th Pennsylvania Cavalry originally, and the 3rd Pennsylvania Cavalry and the 6th Pennsylvania Cavalry for a lot of reasons, we're, we're fairly close with each other. There were a lot of upper society gentlemen that populated the officer ranks of both of those organizations. So, so I'm sure part of what Meade, why Meade wrote had to do with the fact that his son, I'm sure Meade had exposure to, to Brooke Rawl, but his son was also very close with Brooke Rawl. Did you write that there's a there's a flagpole at Gettysburg there is. dedicated to Brooke Rawl? I saw it earlier this week. So, so who was behind that? So, the, so, so there was a union officer's um, uh, veterans organization called the Military Order of the Loyal Legion of the United States, also known as MOLUS. And they were the, the ones who established the original museum here in Philadelphia. They were responsible for, they recognized the work that Rook Rawl had done in documenting the cavalry fighting at Gettysburg, so they raised the flagpole in his honor at Gettysburg. When he died, a, a plaque was affixed to it that says, dedicated to the memory of Brevet Lieutenant Colonel William Brook Rawl. So it was in recognition of his historical work afterwards as opposed to his yes. work as a... Yes, yes. Although probably pay, his, his presence there probably obviously played some part in it, but it was more for his historical work on the battle than anything else. How do those pamphlets read? They, they, they're actually good. He did a very good job with them. And he, he actually talks about it in some of his later writings. The official records of the war came out in the late 1880s to early 1890s. You know, Brooke Rawl did a lot of this back work on his own. He, he reconstructed the battle by his correspondence with former Confederate officers and former Union officers. Again, we, we talk about the fact that what Brooke Rawl saw at Gettysburg was, you know, he's in a woods, charge comes, he runs in and charges, and then he's off pursuing the Confederate army. He really reconstructed the battle very well. And he writes that, you know, after the official records came out, he went back and he, and he reviewed the official records that the, the participants had wrote, and he kind of patted himself on the back. He said, you know, I did a pretty good job on this, considering that I was kind of flying blind here for a while. Is there something you would ask him if you could talk to him? Yeah, I, I, I just, I, I'd want to know who, who, I'd actually want to know his perspective on, on his political thoughts. Um, during the war, and 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 you could see he probably went in as a as a strong McClellan guy, and 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 over time we talked about this. His I think his views modified, and 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 given um, some hindsight, whether it's ten years or whether he and I were sitting here together like you and are now, you and I are now, whether it's a hundred years. What are your thoughts on um, how your views changed during the war? I, I'd love to get some insight into that. I'd love to know what he thought about. Slavery, I'd love to know what he thought about the Emancipation Proclamation. I'd love to know what he thought about, you know, larger notions like liberty and the Union. He's unfortunately silent on, on many of the broad themes of the war, and I, I do mention that in there, and I, I'd just love to pick his brain on some of those things. You have another book in the works? Not right now, no, but uh, I do have some ideas, so, so, so kicking a few things around. We've been speaking with Gregory Akin. He is the author and editor of this book, Blue-Blooded Cavalryman, Captain William Brooke Rawl in the Army of the Potomac. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.